What I really was interested in talking about today was uh, what I think about uh, birth and rebirth and uh, and with that karma because it includes the 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 ideas about karma. I wanted to talk about it because this is my birthday month and a lot of people here have birthdays this month. Where are the people who have birthdays this month? <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Good. We'll uh, do a little celebration for all of us with birthdays at the end. Uh, I don't see any babies today. We've been naming babies for three weeks, so today we'll have birthdays. Uh, who is the oldest of us? I think I am. <laughs> oh, Betty, Betty, how old are you? 72. 77. Oh, Betty just got beat out. <laughs> Anybody more than 77? Who's the youngest of us this month? Mijo, of July birthdays, who's the youngest? Mijo is 60. Susan is 65. You're 66. Phyllis is 54. Anybody lower? 42. 42 this month. Okay. What's your birthday? Mine too. What's your birthday? Sunday. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk about wisdom. When I <laughs> and karma and habits, some probably twenty years ago, um, Sherry Robinson, who's a Zen teacher, and I were having tea together, and she said, um, "Aren't you really looking forward to being a wise old woman?" <laughs> so it's a it's like a it's a complicated question because what I said is I can't say no, but yeah, I actually would have rather. <laughs> I, I said I would rather have be a wise young woman. <laughs> and some people actually start wise young, uh, and some people don't get wise ever. So I, I actually don't think it's uh, uh, you know a little older, a little wiser. I mean, all kinds of folk sayings about that. Sometimes, I, you know. Sometimes I think life is certainly the most extraordinary teacher, so the more of it that you have under your belt. And this is a peculiar cu culture anyway to get older in. If you look at the birthday cards, it's hard to find one that doesn't fool around about uh, being old or, or emphasize what parts of you don't work anymore. Or, um, I, I, I told you when I was here the last couple of weeks ago that I... Uh, had, uh, I was in the middle of reading. Oh, thank you so much, Shoshana. I was reading in the. I was in the middle of reading a uh, detective novel uh, where the protagonist is a uh, Navajo uh, police detective in uh, New Mexico, and her mother is a wise woman. And at one point, there's a scene in it that I love tremendously, where there are tribal meetings happening between the conventionalists and the modernists fighting with each other about 
really about whether they should have a gambling casino and their reasons for and not for and how it might benefit and how it might not benefit. And it's interesting to read about. Uh, and uh, uh, I like very much that the, the mother of the police detective and her friend get all dressed up in the best of their Navajo traditional finery. They're two old women, and they put on all of their jewelry, and they put on their most elaborate costumes, and they go to the meeting in the meeting hall. And the meeting is carrying on in a very heated way. There's a lot of contention. And these two old women, all dressed up, come in there and stand at the side. They don't do anything. They just stand there, these two old women. And everybody becomes uncomfortable. They say, you weren't invited to the meeting. They say, but we're here. <laughs> no, we don't say anything. We just want to stand here. And they just stay there. And they don't really say very much, but they stay there. And their very presence as uh, an embodiment of the value of thinking about what is wise here stops everybody from the heated contention. And they, it's not that they tip the scales one way or another. You don't know how the scales are going to get tipped. It ends up not knowing how it's going to go one way or the other. But the very presence of something emblematic of wisdom, in this case these two old women all dressed up, causes everybody to think a little bit. I think that's why the, the image of the Dalai Lama is such a potent one these days. I, I, I've been thinking about how ubiquitous that image is. You can't take out a patent on the, you know, the look of the Dalai Lama. So he's up on billboards or something, not advertising uh, meditation or meditation retreats, but some product. Uh, and it's just that look, and people will not even know who the Dalai, you know, they, they won't know who he is exactly or what he does, but they'll know about him that he represents somehow an embodiment of peace. I think people probably, it's going to be one of those icons that people will recognize as much as the Coca-Cola signature, which is the same in all countries. And um, I once read that the three most recognized icons were uh, Coca-Cola, uh, Mickey Mouse, and Elvis Presley. <laughs> and maybe now His Holiness is up in there. But, uh, <laughs> but what people like about that is the idea of uh, the possibility of a peaceful heart. And you think about it, uh, there are perfumes getting sold by the name of samsara. Samsara is not something you'd like to have. Uh, samsara means this world of birth and rebirth into continued suffering. But it sounds exotic, samsara. <laughs> and people know that it comes from an exotic tradition that has to do with peace of mind. They're buying samsara. It's like, it's like to buy a perfume called suffering. But the the need to do that is so enormous. You know, the, the <laughs> it is funny a little bit. You get all those catalogs in the mail of if you buy this mala or light this incense, you'll feel better. But we want so much to feel better. Nobody, uh, with all the modern technology, we haven't actually even even with the pharmacopoeia that's available now for people with really uh, hormone imbalances that, uh, that have uh, suffering in the 
extra suffering in their lives because of their hormone imbalance. You can fix the hormone imbalance. And we still have suffering in our lives. We suffer because I think we have the habit of ignorance. That's what the Buddha would have said. We have the habit of not seeing things clearly, of not understanding truly the nature of things. The person who came to the Buddha who was formerly a king and uh, uh, takes robes with the Buddha and then when the Buddha questions him about his practice, he says, formerly, Lord, when I had royal status, there was a well-posted guard both inside and outside the palace and also both inside and outside the city and also both inside and outside the district. Even though I was so guarded and protected, I was often fearful, anxious, suspicious, and worried. But now, Lord, when I'm gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to a room that is void, I am not fearful or anxious or suspicious or worried. I live at ease and quiet, dependent on others' gifts, with a mind like a wild deer. Oh! I love it when that happens, you know. You know, <laughs> 50 years from now, when people are talking about the early teachers here, they'll say there was a miracle. <laughs> I hope wherever I am, I'll enjoy it. <laughs> That's great. I thought you loved the line. <laughs> I thought it was good. I didn't think it was that good. <laughs> This is the good I see in doing this. Knowing the meaning of this, the Buddha then uttered uttered this exclamation. Whoever has no longer conflict lurking in him will have surmounted all the kinds of being, for he is fearless, blissful, free of sorrow. No deity can vie with him in glory. Thinking about it, would you like to have a mind like a wild deer? I actually don't know what a wild deer has as a mind. But what do you think a wild deer has as a mind? Hmm? They're quiet. I don't think deers make noise, do they? Deer make noise. They make noise? Yeah. yeah. Betty says they make noise. They do talk to each other. Yeah. So it made a sound. Mother come and find him? Her? Yeah. What do you suppose the Buddha meant here? What do you suppose he meant when, uh, or this particular king said, I live at ease in quiet, dependent on others' gifts, with a mind like a wild deer. Tell the person next to you what you think it means. Tell the person. Ready, set, go. Tell the, One minute. Tell the person next to you what you think it means. 
Okay, everybody knew, because, I mean, it's what we were. So now, when I say, what do you think that means? Everybody ought to have their hand up. Everybody clearly knew. Go, Shoshana. Well, this probably says more about me, but when I hear that, I think about the deer who don't live at Spirit Rock. These deer know they're safe. You know, they're here in refuge. But I think about deer out there who seem to me to be hypervigilant all the time about what's going to, you know, well, what's going to happen next. So I have to be really on guard. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I think about the wild deer, I think about, you know, the, the wild thought. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I, I can't wait for you to read the next one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what else? Yes. Okay, so what's your name? Gloria. So Gloria is saying that uh, it appears to her that deer have such a um, uh, wonderful sense perception apparatus that actually they're not maybe uh, alarmed all the time because they realize that they can pick up when they need to be alarmed and move at that time. And uh, so they seem to be grazing peacefully. Yeah. Alert. 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 Ashley. Uh huh. Uh, we'll come back to the not planning and remembering, which is I think a particularly human thing because of the elaborate structure of our brains. Um yeah. I think they take only what they need at the moment and don't um, hold on to. You know, they they graze where they're going to graze in their territory, and that's, that's all. Maybe, maybe they they take only what they need in the moment. They don't take extra. Um, maybe that actually goes with the not planning, because if you're not thinking, uh oh, what about tomorrow? Then. Uh, 
when you know, you know when you're on a um, one of the experiences uh, uh, one of the experiences of being on a monastic retreat in a monastic form is we uh, all the people on those kinds of retreats take on the monastic uh, uh, regimen of eating, which is you eat early in the morning at six thirty. And then you take your last meal of the day before noon, and you don't eat until the next day. Uh, and it's just a practice. It's a practice that the Buddha uh, prescribed 2,500 years ago, probably because the monks had a begging bowl and they had to go out. And it was a big deal to go out once a day with a begging bowl. So you go out, you make the rounds for that day, you come back, you eat what you need, and you give away the rest, and you don't eat. It's an ascetic practice until the next morning. You can't save it. You have to give it away. You can't grow it. You have to go out and meet the community every day. Um, and my experience of it is it's really not a problem. You just, you just do it. And you really don't have to fill yourself up at lunchtime in a super way and make yourself uncomfortable. You just... I have a very long time in between lunch and the next meal, but you know, often we, you know, we eat uh, an early supper and don't eat till the next morning. It's not a big privation, but the number of thoughts that the mind makes about, uh oh, I, you know, I'm not going to eat after this. I hope they have something really good, so I want to eat a lot of it, so that I won't possibly later on be uncomfortable. So the mind actually makes things to worry about in advance. Of their happening, you know that. Uh, who else had something that has to do with the planning? There a lot of people said, "Yeah, Susan." Um, I think a sort of freedom of mind that arises here, and also a sort of faith that you're on the right path. I mean, you're getting to where you want to go. So the faith about getting to where you want to go. This is wild, dear. Is that's the first time I actually, when I found that, that was the first time I'd actually heard that. Uh, that. Uh, the simile of a wild deer. So I'm actually interested. What else do you think about it? Yeah. Exquisite attunement to the moment. Out of a need for survival. Just occurs to me that this moment that I'm, I'm thinking about why deer and why not moose or... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm thinking deer are very graceful. They're very graceful. They're very light. On them. They have little feet. They don't make a lot of marks. Yeah. 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 So what do you think it means when the Buddha said, just after, uh, after that remark, when he said... Um, about completely, I'm completely unfrightened. I don't need guards in front and in back. I don't need guards at all the doors. I thought that was such an important line. Now I've lost it. So we did the part about what does a deer look like. But what do you think that means about I had, I had guards at all the doors, inside and outside, but now I don't need them anymore. I can live out. I live at ease, in quiet, dependent on others' gifts. I don't have guards inside and outside. Yeah, Shelley. Um, when, when you're a person of perceiving wealth, there's always a possibility that people are going to want what you have. 
And when you give that all away and you don't have those material possessions, I think that removes a whole layer of concern about people wanting what you mm-hmm. have or taking from you. Mm-hmm. And what he has now is something that somebody can't take from him. Mm-hmm. 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 And the, the, the peace is really, with, and security is with the internal. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that's, but that's what's so scary about what's happening in this world in this country today is that they really kind of scare people into this sort of, <coughs> I mean, to insecurity where we could all be really peaceful and, and so Susan's making a very important point about when your heart is peaceful, you're not frightened. And there are certainly things that could happen in the world. Things are happening in the world, and Susan is suggesting by design, but that uh, that uh, that arouse fear. And there's a certain way in which it's. A, I think it's a good thing that. Under certain circumstances, fear arises. You know that uh, we are. Uh, this is a, a an animal body, and it has and it perceives when it's endangered, and it's wired to be on the lookout for self-preservation. So that um, if a car comes careening around the corner, and I am just about to step out in the street, or I'm in the middle of the street. I'm not hoping to stand there thinking, car, car, (laughs) coming nearer and nearer. I am hopeful that my nervous system will propel me out of the street before I have a chance to think about it. You know, I I think I mentioned in a talk up on the hill last week that uh, you tell me if this is true about you. If you are driving your car and you're obligated to put your foot on the brake very fast all of a sudden, don't you stick this hand out? Mm-hmm. Even if there's no one in the car? Yeah, yeah that it goes out like that. It just happens. No one in the car or in the car with seatbelts, your arm goes out. That you do that without thinking, that that happens faster than, uh, than your rational mind has a chance to think about it. Actually, people have now figured out how much faster that happens. Do you know about how many people have read Dan Goldman's new book and uh, emotional intelligence before it. No? Not so many? A little bit. That uh, the the scientific finding, this is probably close, but maybe not exact, is that the part of the brain that registers alarm, the amygdala, when it looks at, it feels that it's uh, somehow jeopardy is present, is alerted ten times as fast as the rest of the brain that figures things out has a chance to think it over. So that we think, and then we say, oh, that was just a shadow, not a person lurking over there. Or uh, that's a smudge in the road, not uh, something worse. Or uh, Sometimes when you're driving along the highway and it looks like something bad in the road, you think, oh dear, it's going to be a dead animal. And it's a piece of a car tire. And then you think, oh, because the mind looks, takes form, shape, and color, makes a story, frightens. But it's okay that it does that because we should jump out of the way of cars. I think that the ease that uh, that uh, the fearlessness that uh, this particular monk is talking about is not only that he has nothing for anyone to take away. Maybe that as well, but maybe the fear of knowing that death comes to everyone, really, sooner or later that it really is not in our control, 
that being frightened about it is um, not a protection. Actually, more than that, that there's nothing to lose, that this life is one of uh, many lives in that tradition, or at the very least, that this life is normally, naturally, appropriately temporal, that it comes out of something and disappears into something, even if we don't have a sense of more lives after this. Not all Buddhists particularly believe that lifetimes are connected, that um, this lifetime led to that lifetime. What I think the Buddha taught, although he certainly talked about his own former lifetimes, I don't think that was doctrinal particularly. I think that's anecdotal in the stories that he told. I think what he clearly did teach is that there's no one there that goes from one life to the next. The uh, insight of anatta, of selflessness, um, is really a development on the Hindu uh, Brahmin religion that the Buddha was part of. Uh, it really means no atman, anatta. Atman in the Brahmin tradition is the the inner soul, the um, indistinguishable, the distinguishable from everyone else, but completely separate piece of soul that for various reasons uh, is uh, reborn in uh, different kinds of circumstances from life to life. And so to uh, cleanse the soul of all of its defilements so that its next rebirth will be better, or not at all, is really a pre-Buddhist idea. And the Buddha's clear understanding is that there is nothing that stays the same and accumulates karma or doesn't accumulate, that the flow of karma through a life, the flow of actions, causes and effects, makes a difference through the life. I understand uh, karma best in terms of um, day-to-day karma in terms of uh, uh, the obvious causes and effects. If I, uh, um, if I take good care of my health and I go to the gym and I work out and I have adequate rest, my health stays good. Uh, when I'm not careful about it, uh, I don't feel as vital and as healthy. And it's not uh, retribution for sloppy habits. Uh, in the sense of an eye for an eye or just for that. It's really the natural causal conditions that lead to something else. I think to myself, if I'm pretty congenial when I'm old, I'll have a lot of friends. And that uh, I wonder, actually, sometimes, just as I say that to you, <laughs> my aunt died two years ago in uh, uh, Florida, and many of you know I went to see her as she was dying, and I was with her in the hospice as she was dying. She's 82 years old, and uh, really at the brink of death on the, when I arrived, and uh, looked at her lying there, my little old aunt, with purple toenail polish on beautiful manicured toenails, and uh, uh, fingernail polish as well, and giving instructions 
all the while. Open the window, close the window. Turn the light that way through my eyes. Turn it the other way. Move your chair nearer. Move it further away. Talk louder. Talk softer. And I looked at her and I thought, my aunt is going to go out the same exact way that she lived, a little bit vain and a little bit bossy, because that's how she was the whole life. And I thought to myself, it's familial genes, you know, I recognize them. And, uh, and I realized that everybody loved her, not because of it or in spite of it. They just loved her because of the whole package. So just I remembered that at this point because I said, maybe if I'm congenial to people, they'll be friends with me. Maybe uncongenial people have friends in the end, too, just because they hung out with them. Uh, even that was a little bit of a mistake. I mean, people have friends because of because they would live next door for all these years, or because of whatever, or because of the good nature of other people, whether or not they were cranky. The, that, that none of us is singly alone responsible for what happens to us. <laughs> My little old aunt was not that old congenial. She was a little cranky, but everybody loved her. Just for what the package was, or the people who were able to love cranky old people who were bossy, <laughs> loved her. That's their karma, too. That the karmic package seems to me to be what flows from moment to moment. Jack makes a really wonderful point in his book about um, not being able to change your personality too much. Actually, we know much more about personality now than we did 10 years ago when Jack wrote this book. And he really is talking about, um, let me see if I can find the exact, I underlined it for us. because he said it very well. Uh, karma, karma. And I lost it too. Now it's 19. Here we are. As we begin to look closely at our personalities in meditation, Our first impulse is often to try to get rid of our old habits and defenses. Initially, most people find their own personality difficult, unpleasant, even unsavory. (laughs) Do you find your personality difficult? Would you trade it for somebody? Uh, You know, (laughs) a lot of people said yes. Would you? Yes? What would you trade? (coughs) This is like draw poker. If you could give away something, what would you trade? David, what would you trade? Well, actually, I just had the experience. I just came back from a, a three-week trip, and I went to visit um, a good friend of mine who decided he's going to live in a remote part of Colorado all by himself and um, built this beautiful house for himself. Mm-hmm. And I went um, to visit him. It's actually a place that most of us would recognize, uh, Crestland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to visit him, and it was extremely beautiful. And he was the type of person, when he was a professor, he meditated, say, four hours a day. And now that he's retired, he meditates maybe 14 hours. <laughs> and the two days I was there, he put aside. So he didn't do the 14 hours. But I was so taken with the, the beauty of the house that he grew up in. That I actually said to him, why is that a And I said, you know, maybe we could talk on the telephone once a month. We could, like, make a loose date to do that. And he pulled back in horror. He said, you know the way you and I are when we talk, we sometimes talk 45 minutes, and it's true, because I've gone there maybe twice a year. 
And um, he said, and that would throw off my whole schedule. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a little startled and a little hurt. Yeah. And I pulled back and I said, all right, I won't do that. I'm sorry, I should have known better. <laughs> yeah. And he said, don't be so apocalyptic. Really? He could feel me pulling yeah. back. Yeah. And the part of me that I wish were so was my attachment. He's actually a friend I like a lot. And he lives by himself. He doesn't really know anybody there. Um, he doesn't even want to have contact, really. Yeah. People. And there was a part of me that thought, <laughs> maybe once a month we could talk. I didn't know how long. And that might be to the benefit of both of us. And his horror about it triggered yeah. my feelings of rejection. Yeah. I wish I were not so attached. Yeah. I wish I could have thought, this is Jim just being Jim. Yeah. And this is David just being David. You know, I reaching out is pulling back my reactive. And I wish that the wisdom that at moments I have could have come to me at that moment. It took three <laughs> hours of processing. Yeah. Three hours before I let go and he let go. And we both understood that, of course, it was all about just enjoying yeah. together. Yeah. Listen, David, three hours. I mean, so, so but the, there's a chorus of voices here that says, just three hours? Right. People don't talk to their brother for 15 years because they can't figure it out that, you know, it's, this is Jim being Jim, this is David being David, this is everybody being everybody. And even when, when you said, this is me and my attachments, for me to be able to say about myself, this is just me being me, that's all. More I can't be, different I can't be. If I could be, I would be. But, yeah. I'm known to have a bad, tell you a wonderful story. My cousin who brought me today. And I am very emotional and loud. I'm from New York. <laughs> I have a husband who is very passive, more passive than most people, very calm. And I worked for I worked for a woman who had a Mexican housekeeper who everything was manana. Yeah. And I wanted to be like my husband or like her. And I promised myself on New Year's that I was gonna be foolish. I was gonna be like that. (laughs) (laughs) I came into the office for two weeks. And I was like them. Yeah. <laughs> and my boss and this Mexican woman who could hardly speak a word of English came into my office for breakfast and said, You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew they were playing with me. Yeah. I took my purse and I left the room. And they said, Don't you want to know why? <laughs> and I knew they were playing. <laughs> And I said, okay, tell me, if you don't come back, mm-hmm. you're gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know that it was the hardest two weeks of my life, and I did not like it. Yeah. Yeah. I love being the way I am. I love getting excited when I open a package. And I want my husband to be that way, but I realized then that he had to be like he is, and I just had to come back. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? Pardon me? What's your name? Anita. See, so I don't have to even tell you what the Buddha said because Anita and uh, David just gave you the perfect examples of being able to see that personality is personality 
And it's just somehow what comes with the package. It is not, uh, it's not the whole of a person. We're not that, you know, the personality is what manifests in certain situations under certain situations. Certainly this doesn't look like the, this package or your package. None of our packages look like they did uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. You know, in, um, in Barry at the um, uh, Insight Meditation Society, there's a big framed picture of uh, a lot of babies. And uh, they're clearly old pictures because they're all black and white. And you know that one of them is Joseph Goldstein, and one of them is Sharon Salzberg, and one of them is Jack Cornfield. And you look at all these little babies, and actually, if you look at them closely enough, you know which one is who, because this one has ears that are distinctive, and this one has something else, and that one has something else. So you can figure out who is who from the shape of all their parts, but they don't look like them now. And nothing about them is is now except a certain kind of a force of a genetic plan. Uh, Jack has this wonderful oak tree simile here. He says, strictly speaking, there's no such thing as a definitive oak tree. When you think about it, there's only an oak tree pattern through which certain elements follow the cyclical law of karma a particular arrangement of water, minerals, and energy of sunlight that changes it from acorn to sapling to large tree over and over and over again. You think about it, here's the acorn, and it's got, a, it's got oak tree in its genes. It's completely oak tree genes. It has the same genes when it's an acorn that it does, the same genetic pattern as when it's a whole big oak tree making more acorns that fall off, which make more oak trees, which fall off, which make more oak trees. And they grow or they don't grow, depending on where they fell on the ground, depending on whether the ground was fertile or that the ground was dry enough or loose enough for them to take root, whether it rained at the right time or didn't rain at the right time, whether they're struck by lightning, whether they have oak tree blight. But by and large, they're doing their oak tree thing all the time. There are other forces that impinge on it, but it's doing its oak tree thing. My own story of coming to Jack in the middle of a early retreat that I was sitting on, I'd been sitting long enough to be able to watch the patterns of mind. Do you know when we started to sit and uh, I said, just really try to rest in your body, but certainly thoughts will go through and sometimes stories. One of the, th- the fourth foundation of mindfulness is body and uh, uh, whether or not the, the uh, body and breath. The second one is whether the experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The third is the realm of thoughts and mind states, the presence or absence of lots of mind full of thoughts, mind empty of thoughts, mind with peaceful thoughts, uh, mind filled with agitation, mind filled with lust, uh, mind filled with planning. And the fourth realm is the domain usually of the Dharma. And usually it's the realm uh, of seeing patterns of things. And look at these difficult mind states that arise in me, always uh, in response to challenge. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the uh, habitual responses of uh, lust and aversion and torpor and restlessness and uh, doubt that arise in each of us in different ways when we are challenged and how those very arisings are in fact the cause of suffering. I want to read you a little piece 
from a sutta where uh, the Buddha describes so beautifully about how to keep yourself from getting uh, caught in those five um, uh, afflictions of mind, lust and aversion and torpor and and fretting and doubt. So you begin to see the patterns in the mind, but you also begin to see the patterns uh, of um, arising and passing away, the patterns of emptiness, the fact that one thing conditions the next, conditions the next, and there's no one to whom it happens, just things happen. And you get to see how much uh, uh, suffering is contingent on struggle, that uh, when the mind clenches up around what it what is unpleasant and it can't bear, and we're unable to be able to reconcile ourselves either to this is what can be done to alleviate the suffering, or nothing can be done, I surrender, that uh, suffering accrues. But one, uh, so there's the insight about suffering and its causes and its uh, end of suffering. But one of the patterns of mind, which is not the pattern of everybody's mind, but nevertheless a pattern that you get to see, is the pattern of your own personality. So I get to be able to see on this early retreat certain things about myself. You think about stories, certain stories go through your mind, and the stories are always about you in the past and the future and the past and the future. And I realize from the stories, of which I am always the narrator, and you as well, how much of a show-off I am. You already saw that in a couple of times this morning, but (laughs) you know how much I like to, in fact, tell stories and have them come out exactly right and be dramatized. Uh, Oh, I actually realize I can tell you two stories about this, the one I'm telling you and another one. So they both matter, though. I went to Jack at one point, and I said, uh, and my stories are always a little bit, not only that I'm the center of attraction, but a little bit heroic in some way. <laughs> so, so I went, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm totally embarrassed with my personality. I see it coming or going, you know. I just see it, that my, my thoughts arise, costumed in my personality. and I, It's embarrassing. I'm such a complete show-off, and so... Uh, I said, uh, I'm so appalled at seeing my personality that I'm going to be transformed by it, and I'm never going to have it again. <laughs> and, uh, when I get home from this retreat, you'll see I can be a completely different person, <laughs> diffident, always listening to other people, not keeping the whole conversation with me in the middle of it, um, humble. It's much more dignified. It's the kind of person I'd like to be. You watch, when I get home, I'm going to be just like that. <laughs> and, and he said, and it, I, it, it, it was really quite wonderfully sweet. He said, I don't think so. He said, um, <laughs> he said, I think we get issued one personality and one body for the trip. And it was such a sweet way to say it. It makes, yeah, we do. It makes me as not um, culpable for that as I am not culpable for the fact that I am short. I mean, uh, that came, and this came, and that came. It got issued for the trip. And when you think to yourself, it got issued from the trip, and this is here, make the trip. This is, this is the equipment that you have. We all have the same trip, more or less, to do. And everybody gets a different amount of equipment with it. Some people get equipment where they can memorize easily. So I can memorize very easily. So I. All the better for the show-off, you know. That I, you know but, but, 
But other people get equipment that they have a musical ear, and I have none at all. And then they can sing and perform and chant. How many people here have a wonderful voice, sing in tune? There you go. And how many people? And eager to admit it. How many people here have something else wonderful that they're very happy that they have? What have you got? <laughs> there you go. You're a very talented artist. Wonderful. They, who? Right in front of me. What have you got? I like to write poetry. Write poetry? Good. I'm a nine and I'm great at greasing wheels. They're nine on the Enneagram and proud to be it. <laughs> any, any other nines on the Enneagram? There you go in the back. What else? I like to compose music and create elaborate music. There you go. And you're good at it, I take. <laughs> we so now so now that we we're thinking of it, we started with David and the draw poker idea. Suppose someone came along and said, I'll take away something that you don't want. Like uh I think by the way, shy is a gene. How many people here have shy? Yeah? Would you give it away? No. No, okay. Let's speak on behalf of no. Speaking on behalf of no. I like the fact that I'm shy. Yeah? I won't say anything more about it. He is too. <laughs> Are you shy? Yeah, no, 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 no. What would you give away? Anything, yeah. It's the compulsivity to, to be what you are. You know, like, I'm always making jokes. You know, like the first words my kids said to me is, Dad, you're joking, you know? Because I use it as a grease. Well, maybe that's the place at which we'll, the, these two places are the place at which we'll stop because those are both so important. Identifying with your personality and using it well. Okay? Um, I am hopeful that I do that with mine. You know, that I, 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 I'm counting on the fact that I can tell you about that show-off business because I think I use it reasonably well. Uh, not... Uh, I'm hopeful, not for a personal need, but because it's a good teaching tool. Now that I have a teaching gene. My father before me had it. I know how to tell a story well. Um, and I get a tremendous pleasure out of being able to teach somebody something. Some people have teaching genes. Some people have research genes. Some people have philosophizing genes. I have spread the word. I think I was a town crier in a former life or something. <laughs> but, uh, but so let's leave that. The, uh, also, what, what you said, remind me of your name. Terry. Terry. Terry's point about who he thinks about themselves, my feelings are easily hurt. I'm easily wounded. <laughs> a lot of people. I, I remember a hurt for a long time. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. But Terry's point, Terry's point, yeah. Terry's point is, would you give it away? I would give away the forever. 
I, I would give away the remembering part. I would give away the remembering part. But I don't know if I'd give away the feeling part. Because I actually do think that it makes me more careful. Does it make you careful? And I actually want to be careful. The end of, uh, the end of this particular reading that I wanted to do for you was uh, uh, the first teaching of the Buddha. So I think that what that other, what that king was saying to him is I'm free. I am free of all of the attachment to ego that gives rise to fear. If you don't, if you, I mean, I have an ego, I have personality. I'm, by the way, I don't want to lose my ego because I want to use it. I mean, the ego is not, sometimes you, you feel, you, you hear about in spiritual practices that you have to defeat the ego or overwhelm it. I, my ego is what causes me to remember my phone number and, you know, the birthdays of my friends and whether or not to cross the street with which light and how to drive on a freeway. And so I need that ego. Uh, I even need the ego with all of its personality components to be able to negotiate in the world. But I need to know that it's a heuristic construct. It's just here temporarily. It's being formed in every moment. It's being shaped in every moment. When Jack said you get one for the trip, you do get one for the trip, but it's not exactly the same. It has its same uh, uh, basic tendencies. If I go to my college reunion 45 years after I graduated, which I did a couple of years ago, I get recognized by people, and I recognize other people, in spite of the fact that we're all old women at this point. But you see the face in that. So everybody changes, but the basic traits are there. My personality is not exactly the same as it was when I was young, and it is tempered by sensitivity, and it isn't quite so self-serving as it used to be. But it has the same general markings on it. Uh, and uh, to the degree that it wasn't, I wasn't using it in a wise way before, I hope I'm doing that better now. That's the piece I think gets changed, that basically we make wise adjustments, and it's not so hard to make those adjustments when you see that that certain trait is painful. Now, able to use the trait in a way that's not painful. Even to be able to say, you know, I like being shy. It serves me. I can give short answers, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and and be and feel all right about myself about it. I think that actually, when the Buddha said there is no one in the world more worthy of your well wishing than yourself, that's I think such a crucial thing. I don't think it means that everybody in the world. I actually think everybody is the same meritorious. How about that? How about that? Everybody is the same meritorious because I think it's a shared merit. I think it's a shared merit and a shared karma. I don't think, uh, I don't think anybody, uh, this is actually my, maybe someone will object, but I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, today I'm going to be totally terrible. You know? Uh, even ruthless, terrible people who do awful things see the world out of another lens. They are operating from another program. I, I really believe that. Or they're operating from a program that is causing tremendous turmoil in them. 
I think that what we all mostly want is peace of our own heart, which means to be able to say about ourselves, I'm not embarrassed. This is me. Um, I am blameless, the Buddha said, was the best feeling, the bliss of blamelessness, which is, I think, saying I'm doing the best I can. How many people here would say about themselves, I'm doing the best I can? I think everybody is, because we all try. Nobody, everybody wants not to suffer. We are all doing the best we can. There was a psychologist named uh, John Enright. I, I think he's still living. Who, who once? He, is he ill? I can think about him for a minute. I, I only met him once. I took a class with him. 40 years ago, and he said, you have never made a wrong decision in your life. And I felt so good about that. He always said, you know, because I could think of a lot of things I did that I wish I didn't do. And he said, you never, you, you always made the best decision you could possibly make, given the information you had. That was so, such a relief. Everybody really wants to be happy. So we'll talk a little bit just more. I didn't end up where I thought I was going to end up with the karma, but talk a little bit more about everybody being just the way they are. And one of my principal senses of karma. I spent the last two days with a friend of mine. He was visiting. We were all having this kind of a summer, David. People pass through, and they stay with you for two days. And you have two days of intense talking, and then they leave, and you don't see them for a long time friend came, spent two days with me, and we talked the whole time. And uh, I've known this person as a working colleague in work that I've done over the last 10 years, but we really didn't know a lot of our personal stories and growing up stories. And we have similar uh, European backgrounds, but uh, you know, his people came from one way, mine from another way. And we spent two days together, and we found that the conversation was keeping telling stories about, well, my brother's, uh, my brother's wife's father, and then tell his story. So he told a lot of family stories. And we realized as we listen, and this is true of your stories too, everybody's stories, is that when you tell anybody's story, it's full, every, that every single thing in it is a coincidence. That when you think, oh, what a coincidence, I just happened to meet him. If you hadn't met him, it would be a coincidence that you meet somebody else. People met the people that they married and then had 17 grandchildren with because they took this boat from Danzig instead of that boat from, Amster, from, uh, from Holland, or because they left one day earlier or one day later, or they got on this plane or the other plane, or they stepped out carefully and didn't break their ankle, or they stepped out uncarefully and broke their ankle. But the whole life changes on every step. And we told enough family stories that you suddenly realize <gasps> that everything hangs on every single thing, that if that person hadn't met that person, my life depends. I, I like to tell people when I talk about karma that Marco Polo is part of my karma. Well, Marco Polo founded trade routes to the Orient uh, from Europe, from Italy. And um, the fact that I am here, uh, the fact that I'm born in the United States, depends on the fact that uh, my uh, 
ancestors came to the United States. <coughs> my grandmother came from one place in Austria. My grandfather came from another place in Austria. Uh, my grandmother had brothers <coughs> living here already who happened to know, uh, happened to meet a man, and they had an unmarried sister, so they introduced them, so they liked each other. So my mother was born. In the meantime, just so happens that my, my other grandparents had to meet each other. They had to like each other sufficiently. But if you think about the fact that not only did they have to meet, but their parents had to meet, and their parents had to meet, and their parents had to meet, and all of my 32 great-great-grandparents have to have met each other at the time that they did to have produced the progeny that they did, to have produced my parents and the final fallout of that. But it also depends on the <laughs> fact that Marco Polo opened trade routes to the, uh, to the Orient, which changed the immigration pattern <laughs> to the United States because it changed the economic climate of Europe and people needed to emigrate because the social structure changed. So the fact that I am here is dependent on all of that. And it came to me that uh, some must be seven or eight, nine years ago, because I was trying to explain karma to this whatever group was here at that point, and I had my grandson on my lap. and. Uh, he sneezed. And uh, I said, you know, it, this is proximal karma. If I get, get a, a cold from, from Eric sneezing, it won't be because I did a kind act or a not kind act. It will be the proximal karma of having been sitting in the line of fire when he sneezed right here. But even more, it has to do with the fact that Eric is here. And Eric is here because he's my grandchild, and he's my grandchild because then I went through all this all the way up to Marco Polo. So when you think about it, the, the fact that I might get the flu uh, pursuant to this has also to do with Marco Polo, that everything has to do with everything, if you think about it. If there's no one there, and everything is proximal and distal karma, then it makes everyone not culpable but everyone responsible. Everyone is responsible. Every one of those players, and actually in the whole world, not only Marco Polo, but every other player that had anything to do with the history of the world. That means from the moment of creation, everything has affected everything. It doesn't mean that that means that there's nothing to do. I think it means on my part that there's everything to do. That in the end, because you realize it is so way multi-determined, the causes of any particular situation. And every situation, whether it comes out one of suffering or not suffering, is really determined from the beginning of time. And every single action, including what's come up to this one now, it makes me feel all the more that in this moment, my action has to come out as impeccable as it can be, so that my contribution to the karma of the next moment is a salubrious one, that mine tends in the direction of not suffering. What I had meant to read was the whole sermon on setting into motion the turning in the wheel, which is what the Buddha first recited to his uh, former colleagues, his former monks that he had been studying with. Uh, and uh, we're almost out of time, and we have something else to do. so. Uh, I'll read you my summary that I wrote in this book 20 years ago when I figured out what this meant. It says, Incarnate life is by its very nature often painful, and even when it isn't, 
Its essential nature is impermanence. We suffer not because of how things are, but because we struggle with how things are. We want them otherwise. Not because of how things are, but because we struggle with how things are. We want them otherwise. We can stop struggling. Liberation is possible. And that the way to do it is by practicing virtue. Very glad that I knew that so many years ago. That by determining not to add any more pain into the world, which is actually the moral response to the awareness of a suffering world, you make a commitment to mindfulness, to peacefulness, because you can't decide to not add suffering to the world unless you decide to do the best you can to stay awake. You know, uh, when we take the five precepts, the first four are to not cause any harm. Not by killing, not by taking what isn't given, not by exploiting or abusing with your speech, not by exploiting or abusing with your sexuality, and by uh, renouncing whatever it is that confuses the mind and leads to heedlessness. I actually think we could take only the last precept. I renounce whatever confuses the mind and leads to heedlessness. I think if we could see clearly, we would see the suffering. If we saw the suffering, we would respond with compassion. If we saw that actually everything is habits squeezed through this walk of time, habits, genetics, tendencies, and that everybody is doing the best they can, we would come to the end of contention. We would be kind. Wouldn't mean that we would let anybody do anything. Mean we would be firm, we would be strong. What were your two words, by the way, that you used to reflect on? Or I'll tell you mine. Mine were protected and strong. They're all fine, they all mean the same thing. But, and I didn't pick them out, they just came to me. But I think for myself, protected this morning was meaning knowing what's true. So protected from a perturbed heart and strong in terms of resolute until the end to do something. I would like for the 10 people who have birthdays to come up here. And usually we have little babies and we give them names. Now we need the old babies. Not, not necessarily in order of oldness, but come up. These are, uh, please sign up to be an ongoing supporter of Spirit Rock Envelope. People keep taking them, but they didn't keep sending them in. So you have to not only really take them, you have to do something with them. I sent mine in and put one in. Yeah, okay, then they don't know about it. They said four people. Did more people than four? I'm going to pass these out. All those people are going to come here because we have to say our names. I think we're going to do this as a new ritual, by the way. Everybody sits down over here. Everybody. Who wants to sit on my lap? I usually get a baby sitting on my lap. I should get the, the baby on my lap. Mijo, you hold this one on your lap. I want you to hold this one on your lap. Okay, you hold that on your lap. You can hold that on your lap. Okay. All right. Now here we go. You want to sit up here? Can I sit up here? You can sit on the edge of that, sure. Probably heresy, you'd be see a big lightning come out of the sky. <laughs> I would like you to say, my name is, and I am 42 years old. Okay. Uh, my name is Melissa, and I'm 42 years old. Okay. My name is Don, and I'm 70 years old. Okay. 
My name is Liz, and I'm 52 today. Hey. <laughs> I'm Betty, and um, I'm 72, and so is my twin sister. <laughs> my name is Amy, and I'm 63. My name is Iris, and I'm uh, 41 until Sunday. <laughs> my name is Jan, and I'm 64. My name is Susan, and I'm 66 today. My name is Mijo, and I'll be 60 on Monday. Whoops. Oops. The little thing you fall. My name is Phyllis, and I'm, I was 54 on the 4th of July. <laughs> My name is Karen, and I'm 57 on the 14th, Bastille Day. My name is Patricia, and I was 58 on the 4th of July. <laughs> my name is Sylvia, and I'll be 67 tomorrow. So, who has my same birthday tomorrow? There you go. Okay. So, you know how we always do the baby blessings, and we think up a good thought, and we make blessings. So I invite you to say a group blessing to all of us. I wish you go. <laughs> it feels good to be get blessed, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can duck. <laughs> good health. It's a pleasure. I, I I will I will say for all of us, it's a very big pleasure to find oneself uh, well loved and in the midst of company that wants to bless. Uh, you probably all know that the Buddha said uh, that Ananda said to the Buddha, Ananda, his chief disciple, said to the Buddha, "Is it true, Lord, that noble friends uh, constitute half of the holy life?" And the Buddha said, "No, it's not true, Ananda." Noble friends are the whole of the holy life. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so the, the Dalai Lama's birthday is July 6th. Ah, so there you go. The Dalai Lama's birthday is July 6th. Mijo is 60, so that's a very round number and wonderful. And and someone's 70. Seven. Oh. Uh, what's your name? Donald. Hmm? Don. Donald is uh, 70. Big round numbers. <laughs> so what do we?
So um, why do you say we do this every month? You like this? This is a nice thing. It's a nice thing. It's wonderful to get blessed. So you have we have, so you have to come every month to be a blessee or a blesser, because you need a critical mass to do a good blessing. <laughs> So I uh, I would like for everyone here to pick a flower and take it home. Mijo, someone brought you that vase, so you get to take the vase home with you with what flowers are left. But everyone can pick a flower. Everybody be very well. Let's take one minute to wish well to the whole world. May every being, every human being on this planet have someone who knows it's their birthday, who will remember to bless them on their birthday and hold them in their heart. May everyone on this planet know that someone somewhere is holding them in their heart from their birthday until their last day. And may we, as a community, make a dedication to hold the world of souls in our heart and bless them by our practice, with our practice, in our practice. May we carry the knowledge that every human being in this world shares with us the desire to experience a peaceful heart, a happy heart, and a sense of protection and fearlessness and strength. Let's, by our wishing, hope that we experience it ourselves. And let's dedicate the merit of our practice to the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.